Hear ye, hear ye. The honorable court of God's judgment is now in session. Today, the prophet Hosea will reveal the indictment of the Lord God against his people Israel. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. This indictment, this bringing of charges against Israel, seems evident that it is pointing to a courtroom setting. Now there are some difficulties with seeing it that way, but those difficulties are not insurmountable. If you remember back in Hosea chapter 2, It was the prophet who was bringing an indictment against Gomer, calling on her own children to bring the charges. He wrote back in Hosea 2, verse 2, bring charges against your mother, bring charges, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. But as the Lord God is using Hosea's marriage as a living illustration of the unfaithfulness of his own people, Now the indictment sort of echoes from the courtroom of heaven. The difficulty comes in that when we see the charges presented this way, the outcome seems all but certain, right? Who who is the divine judge of all the earth? Well, it's God himself. Who is the prosecutor who is bringing this indictment? Well, Verse 1 says it is the Lord, Yahweh, who's bringing this charge. And it gets even better because in verse 1 it makes it clear that the jury that is being called to hear the case is the children of Israel, while the accused defendant is the inhabitants of the land. And y'all, that is the same people. This chapter opens with God calling on his people to be the jury, And to listen as he serves as the prosecuting attorney convicting them. And to know with assurance that the ultimate authority is God himself. Now there is this threefold indictment in verse 1 that needs just a bit of explanation. There are essentially three charges being brought in verse 1. First, there is no truth. Second, there is no mercy. And third, there is no knowledge of God in the land. And a quick study of the words there will make the point more clear. The word truth there in verse 1 is a form of the Hebrew word meaning steadfastness or more importantly faithfulness. The word for mercy is hesed and it means loyalty or or kindness or steadfast love. So it seems very likely that God's indictment here mirrors the experience of Hosea with his unfaithful, disloyal wife, Gomer. The ESV translates this as, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. These are all sins of omission, right? That is, they are things that Israel was not doing. There were things that Israel was failing to do. But a sin of omission is just as condemning as a sin of commission. 
In the New Testament, James says to, to have, whoever knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So just as a point of application here, do not excuse yourself when you fail to do what you know that you should do because a sin of omission is sin. The problem is, sins of omission don't usually exist in a bubble. They don't happen just by themselves. As the charges unfold, the evidence which proves Israel's guilt is seen not only in God's accusation of what they were failing to do, but also in the way he details, here are the things that they did. The lack of faithfulness, the lack of steadfast love, the lack of the knowledge of God, all of those things they did not do are proven by what they are doing. Verse 2, by swearing and lying, that is, making oaths and breaking them. Killing and stealing and committing adultery. They break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Therefore the land will mourn and everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beast of the field and the bird of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. Note how the Ten Commandments are used here. They have been lying. There's murder. There's stealing. There's adultery. They break all restraint, God says. That is, their sin has no boundary. There's, there's nowhere they won't go. There's nothing that they won't do. Bloodshed, he says, follows bloodshed, right? One murder gets followed by the next, and the nation as a whole thinks everything is fine. The consequence of their sin goes beyond individuals to the entirety of the land itself. Verse 3 could mean that the sins of the nation include the destruction of the environment and we're not going to... Listen, you don't have to be a goofy tree hugger to uphold the truth that we are called to be good stewards of God's creation. So there are some applicable truths here for us today, but it's it's difficult to see how Israel at this point in world history even possessed the ability to affect, you know, verse 3, the fish of the sea. So it's more likely, this is a reminder for the Lord, from the Lord, that the consequences of sin is not restricted to ourselves. Even the created world around us suffers under the effects of sin. We it, through the fall, we invited sin into the world and death came right in with it so that the perfect creation of God also suffers the effects of our sin. And if that's the case, if that's what God's saying here, how, must, how, how much does creation suffer as a nation embraces one murder after another murder as described in verse 2? This is going to come around to us here in a minute. How is it that anybody can respond to these charges when God is the one who's making them? Wisdom would be to plead guilty and throw yourself on the mercy of the divine judge of all the earth. But the reality is, sinful people do not accept the responsibility for their actions. Instead, what we frequently choose to do is one of two things, either argue that the charges aren't accurate and that, you know, 
that it's, it's unjust to accuse us of doing wrong. Or second, blame somebody else for all the wrongdoing that's going on. Verse 4 begins with the divine prosecutor shutting down both of those options. Verse 4 begins, let no man contend or rebuke another. In other words, don't start complaining and bringing your counter arguments and don't start pointing fingers at somebody else like it's all their fault. Just listen. Listen to what the Lord your God is saying. If indeed there is in verse 1, no knowledge of God in the land. It's not because the Lord has been silent, it's because his people have been willingly deaf. So God speaks and says here, it's the job of the people to listen intently and comply with his commands, not to go about defending themselves or trying to point the finger of blame somewhere else. This is what it means in verse 4 when it says, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. It's a little confusing because we're about to see that at this point in time, the priests are actually doing very badly by the people. But this is a reference to the law of Moses. God said in Deuteronomy 17, you know, that if a matter arises that's too hard for you to judge, you should come to the priests and do according to the sentence that they pronounce against you or upon you. You you have to be careful to do according to everything they command. So in other words, the the way God had designed Israel to work is that you know you and your neighbor can have a disagreement and you can debate about that all you want, but the point at which you come to the authorities, the authorities you come to are the priests, and they will issue judgment. And at that point, the debate is over. But God says here in verse 4, you are like those who contend with the priest. In other words, you've got the judgment. The judgment's been made. You're just not willing to listen to it. You're, You're not willing to act accordingly. Everyone is determined, even in the face of God's word, to do only what's right in their own eyes. And so these are the charges that God brought against the nation. Don't contend. Don't argue against it. Don't rebuke one another. Don't start pointing fingers at somebody else. And in fact, the remainder of this chapter, the Lord's going to remove every potential target for finger pointing. Whose fault is it that the nation is in such a bad shape? God says it's everybody's fault. In verses 5 through 10, he's going to say it's the leader's fault. In verses 11 through 14, he's going to show that all the people are guilty. So let's look at the leaders being guilty in verses 5 through 10. Therefore, you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I also will reject you from being a priest before me. Because you've forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They, and this is talking about the priests, eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on their iniquity and it shall be 
like people, like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. For they shall eat, but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry, but not increase because they have ceased obeying the Lord. Verses 5 through 10 describe that the leaders of the nation are guilty. But to see that, we have to sort of define some of the characters in those verses. In verse 5, it mentions the prophet, although this is not a specific individual. It's certainly not Hosea. What this is a reference to is any false prophet who reassures the people that everything's fine even as they are in the process of walking toward destruction. Also in verse 5, there is the mother, and some have argued that this is a false like mother goddess, but others say it represents all parents. I think most likely this is a reference to the nation as a whole. Remember the picture of Hosea, right? That Gomer and her children are sort of casting this shadow. The mother seems to be a reference to the nation as a whole and and the leadership of the nation specifically. The character that looms largest in these verses are the priests. At this point in time, the priesthood's job was to declare God's word, to explain God's word, to make judgment in, at the time of disputes, to, to help the people live according to God's righteous standards. They were the spiritual leaders of the nation at this point in time. What becomes evident in verses 5 through 10 is it pictures the nation's leaders and their lack of righteous leadership. The prophets, the mother, the, the priests all stumble. They all face rejection and destruction. And as a result, that leadership is drawing the entire nation into the same kind of rejection and destruction. In verse 6, my, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because you, that is the leaders, specifically the priests in this case, have rejected knowledge. This matches part of the indictment from verse 1, right? Verse 1, the accusation was there's no knowledge of God in the land. Israel's leadership, particularly the priesthood, were responsible for leading the people to destruction by allowing their willful ignorance of God's word to continue. The people wanted nothing to do with hearing God's command, and as a result, the leaders who should have been boldly declaring God's word were quite happy to allow the people to remain ignorant and immovable. And let me just insert here, this can happen today too. Even in the Lord's churches, we can get content with the way things are going, not at all interested in anything changing, and the leadership of a church can either embrace that ignorance and apathy or fight against it, right? God's word declared honesty is all, honestly is always going to fight against that. It's there for us to instruct us and, and rebuke us and correct us and change us. So I would suggest to you that Israel's spiritual leaders, they paid lip service to God's word. They just didn't proclaim the portion of God's word that mattered in the moment. 
If they were really leaders, they would have confronted the people with what God's word had to say. The motivation they had for not leading, well, it would have sounded something like this. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I like the way things are going right now. Things are going good. We're all getting along. We're all prospering. Why rock the boat? Everything is good right now, so just, just let it ride. That was definitely the attitude of the leaders of Israel during the early years of Hosea's ministry because at this point in time, the greatest threat to Israel was the Assyrian Empire, but the Assyrian Empire had just fought a war with another nation and they were weakened temporarily. In Israel, as a result, the economy was booming, the people were content. It just seemed like things were going good. Look at verse 7. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. This increase means to enlarge or become numerous. The people were doing well. The priesthood's ranks were growing. Everything seemed good. Everything seemed great. You know, with the exception of the oath-making and promise-breaking and the lying and the theft and the adultery and the murder after murder and completely unrestrained sin, other than that, everything seems great. A nation following its leadership can use God's blessings on ourselves and our posterity to fuel the fires of wickedness. Any such nation faces God's judgment when he says, I'm going to change their glory into shame. So whose fault is this? Whose fault is it when wicked leadership of any nation derails any hope of righteousness and promotes ignorance and rejection of God's word? Well, the easy answer is to say, well, it's all the leader's fault. But look at verse 9. It shall be like people, like priest. So I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. What's the difference between the people and the priesthood. What, what, what's the disparity here between the nation and its leaders? Verse 9 tells us that there's a correlation, and that correlation starts with the people. And while it's evident from the prior verses that the priesthood, the leadership, had led the people astray, verse 9 also is telling us the priesthood is really following the people. Like, like people, like priest. The people and the priesthood are both together going to be held to the same judgment for their sins. And so let me ask here, as just a point of application, if this is true for ancient Israel, whose leaders were assigned as a result of inherited leadership, I mean, you were either born into royalty or not. You were born into the priesthood or not. But if the people of Israel are held responsible for the wicked leadership of their nation, how much more do you think the Lord God will judge a people in a nation like our own who actually choose our own leaders? Verse 5 through 10 tells us that the leaders of Israel are guilty. In verses 11 through 14, we start to learn that the people are guilty. 
Now this is going to get complicated for just a second, so, so try to bear with me. I think Hosea has done something interesting here which is not immediately obvious. There is a case to be made that Hosea uses a proverb, not a proverb you'll find in the book of Proverbs, but a, a well-known saying and sort of breaks it apart into verses 11 and 14 to surround what he's saying. So the proverb would be, if you start at the beginning of verse 11, harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. And then at the end of verse 14, therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. The idea of that saying is to essentially say that sins like sexual immorality and drunkenness get a grip on your mind, removing your understanding, and then that lack of understanding ultimately leads to destruction. So we might say it this way. Sin in every form is addictive and destructive. But between those two parts of this saying, God's indictment of Israel continues as we see between those. Every generation, men and women alike, are guilty. We see this generation and the next generation. They're equally at fault. fault. Men and women are both committing sin. They've embraced idolatry. God says in the process they have been seduced by the sins of idolatry. So let's look at that center section there. Verse 12, my people ask counsel from their wooden idols and their staff informs them. For the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray and they have played a harlot against their God. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops and burn incense on the hills under oaks, poplars and terebinths because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters commit harlotry and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. I don't know that we need to delve into all the specifics of what it means to worship the Baals. And, And yes, by the way, sometimes... In Scripture, it's referred to as Baal worship, as if there is one false god named Baal, but other times it is the Baals because they thought, well, there's many, they're everywhere. I mean, as many as we can make and stick on a hill, there's, a, there's another one. But the stupidity of idol worship can be seen in verses 12 and 13. Asking a wooden idol for advice, getting, getting counsel from a stick, worshiping on the hillside under trees because you like the shade and you can almost hear them saying hey i can worship out here in nature just as good as i can anywhere else well sure you can but you're not worshiping the true god that way god's address here is clear that every generation men and women alike are at fault right your daughters commit harlotry. Your brides commit adultery. The men themselves go out to the harlots. The only difference here seems to be the expectation that the men of Israel had that God was going to judge their wives and daughters, but not themselves. God says, I'm not going to do that. Not because 
those daughters and those wives who are sinning are not sinning, but just because they're not more guilty than the men. It's evident that judgment, fair judgment, is coming on them all because the nation is a mess. God's threefold indictment of them is accurate. The nation is unfaithful, it's disloyal, it is ignorant, it is filled with oath-breaking and lying and killing and stealing and adultery and murder after murder, and it's tolerated because everybody's happy saying, things are going good for us right now. We're sure blessed. Don't, don't harsh the fun vibes by preaching God's word. Just leave us alone. We're all doing okay. After all, I think God's happy with me out here on the hilltops with nothing but some shade and a whore to keep me company. What is it that we can learn from this? That's what the final section of this chapter is all about. Can you learn from their mistakes? In verses 15 through 19, remember, Israel is a nation, but at this point in time, it is not the entirety of Judaism, right? Israel in the north had broken away from Judah in the south because they didn't want the same kings, they didn't want the same worship, the people of Israel could still come down to Jerusalem and Judah and worship God at the temple. They just didn't do it. In fact, Israel's kings had set up a couple other choices. You were were free to worship the Baals on any hilltop you wanted, but if you still liked the idea of worshiping Yahweh, well, we've got that too, and it's so much closer than Jerusalem. We've made a couple of golden calves and each one of them represent Yahweh and they are conveniently located. There's going to be one close to you right off the main interstate. One's in Beth-Avon and the other one's in Gilgal. So you just come on down. You can say you're worshiping Yahweh as you go to that golden calf. You can visit our priests. Don't worry They're not going to harsh your good mood by telling you what God actually says in his word. Meanwhile, in the south, in Judah, they had some good kings and they had some bad kings. And things are going bad, but it's not this bad. They are slowly, in Judah, they are slowly being drawn into the same destructive tendencies as their, their wicked sister Israel. And so after delivering this indictment on Israel's sin, there's a message for Judah starting in verse 15 to essentially ask, can you learn from their mistakes? Verse 15, though you, Israel, play the harlot, let not Judah offend. Do not Come up to Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, nor swear an oath, saying, As the Lord lives. For Israel is stubborn like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forage like a lamb in open country. Ephraim, this is another name for Israel, is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. Her rulers dearly love dishonor. The wind has wrapped her up in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Right? Judgment is coming on Israel, and the message here to Judah is, 
Can you resist the draw of following in her destructive tendencies? Don't go to worship with them. Don't do what they do. Don't be fooled into thinking that their apparent prosperity means that judgment is far away. Even now, verse 19 describes the wind is picking up to carry Israel away into judgment. Y'all, this is where the rubber meets the road for us. As the people of the nation of Judah are essentially called to this courtroom to listen to this scathing indictment being handed down against Israel, they also get the message that if they continue in the same kind of wickedness that Israel had embraced, then they were facing the same judgment of God. And so, what do we say to that as we're not residents of Israel and we're not residents of Judah and yet we do live in a nation? We live here in 21st century America. Are we prospering? Do we live in a land filled with so much dishonesty that we don't even know what to believe in the news that we see and read? Do the people around you and you yourself engage in frequent oath-making and promise-breaking? Is theft a problem? Is adultery an issue? Is the United States given over to idolatry? Is there a lot of drunkenness? Do we sit idly by, indifferent as murder follows murder and it happens around us? And do you think God counts the murder of unborn children in that list? Is sexual immorality rampant everywhere? And we could add that to to that list, a, a, a wide variety of sexual deviance, of homosexuality and transgenderism, right? Do we live in a nation that celebrates greed, a nation that chooses its leaders but continually finds itself led by wicked leaders because it turns out they're a reflection of us. And the last thing we're interested in is God's word being declared so that it would actually change us. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, God says. If we insert ourselves into this story, Do you think our nation is like Judah being warned, don't go that way? Or do you suppose that we're the nation that others need to be warned about? Does this indictment, there is no truth, there is no mercy, there is no knowledge of God in the land, does it ring true for our country? Because y'all, there is only one righteous kingdom and that is the one with the Lord Jesus as king and we all individually face the same kind of indictment that we read here in Hosea 4 and we face the judgment that follows it I pray for the day the Lord Jesus will come and restore his people Israel I pray that the nation in which we are citizens, would turn from its wicked ways. I pray that as individuals, you would know the Lord Jesus through faith, 
so that you have confidence. He has already answered this indictment against your sins because he has paid the penalty suffering judgment in your place. But this chapter does call us to determine where our ultimate loyalty lies because there is a point at which we cannot continue in the steadfast love of God and at the same time assume that he is pleased with an unfaithful nation that has rejected him. And so what kingdom do you associate yourself with? Ultimately, we want the righteous kingdom that only Jesus can establish. 